0: One step in this long progress. It's been a team effort by us all the way. We are but part of the whole team that's worked so hard. The shuttle era will come to an end, but they won't stop inspiring, and they won't stop being a part of the fabric of America.
1: We choose to on the gutter. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for man.
2: All right and welcome everybody to another episode of the talking space podcast this is talking space episode 910 for the week of monday september 4th 2017 that's labor day here in the united states i'm sawyer rosenstein and joining me tonight is kat Robinson. welcome kat
3: hi pleasure to be here
2: and welcome as well mark ratterman hi everybody Gene Mikulka, as it is Labor Day that we are recording this, is out with his family, but we will still be hearing from him a little bit later in this episode with a very special pre-recorded bit, so you're going to want to stay tuned for that. But in the meantime, we're going to jump right into space news, and the most relevant being that Saturday, September 2nd, 2017, the crew of Expedition 52 returned safely back to Earth after their stay aboard the International Space Station. Their Soyuz MS-04 capsule landed safely in the steppes of Kazakhstan, bringing their mission to an end, landing at 9.21 p.m. Eastern Time, which was 7.21 a.m. Sunday local time in Kazakhstan. The crew returned after a mixed amount of days in space. For two of the crew members, Jack Fisher and Fyodor Yurchankin, Jack Fisher being of NASA, Yurchankin of Roscosmos. Completed their 136 days in space, whereas Peggy Whitson logged 288 days on her third space flight. While up in space, she set a whole bunch of records, and we've talked about how amazing Peggy Whitson is, and we've been talking about it for the last 288 days, including some of the people from NASA talking about it. She is the U.S. astronaut who has spent the most cumulative time in space, totaling 665 days over her three space flights. She's the only female astronaut to command the space station twice. She is the female astronaut who has spent the longest time in orbit during a single spaceflight with her 288 days, and also has spacewalking records. She holds the record for the most number of spacewalks at 10, and total time spacewalking at 60 hours and 21 minutes for a woman, and the third most for any spacefarer. That includes NASA, Roscosmos, everybody.
3: Peggy Whitson is amazing. And an inspiration, and just all around a great role model for not only women but for everyone. And it's just pretty impressive. She has an impressive career, as you just heard, with with Sawyer giving us just sort of a list of her accomplishments. And it was interesting, actually. My best friend's been visiting this weekend, and she brings me a news article. She's like, "Oh, did you see about this astronaut? Is Peggy?" And I was like, "Whitson." And she's like, "Yes." And I was like, "Yep." Yeah she's pretty amazing.
2: (laughs) Yeah, she's just one of those standout astronauts that there's some people at NASA that are just, you know, and she's one of them. And, uh, you know, at one point, she was the head of the, uh, the astronaut office, too, at the Johnson Space Center. And now holding all these records, I mean, she's pretty awesome. It's
3: definitely pretty fantastic.
2: Both her and Jack Fisher, I should add, on their return to Houston on Sunday, did receive a call from the president congratulating them on their successful mission, and in particular, Peggy, for all of her accomplishments. Now, there are currently three crew members currently aboard the International Space Station. In command right now is NASA astronaut Randy Bresnik. Also up there is Roscosmos cosmonaut Sergei Ryazinski and ESA astronaut Paolo Nespoli. They will be joined, as of right now, scheduled for September 12th by three new crew members. They'll be launching aboard their Soyuz on September 12th from the Baikonur Cosmodrome in Kazakhstan, that includes NASA astronauts Joe Acaba, Mark VandeHei, and cosmonaut Alexander Misurkin. So now we have to do our launch roundup of all the recent launches that happened since our last episode. So we'll begin with SpaceX, and their Formosat 5 launch. That launch successfully occurred out of Vandenberg Air Force Base in California on August 24th. The launch not only successfully put the satellite into space, but also returned the first stage to the barge, just read the instructions, floating out in the Pacific Ocean. This mission marked the 15th successful booster landing for SpaceX, be it either on a barge or land, And, a record for them, their 12th successful launch this year, beating their previous record by at least doubling it from last year. So, SpaceX on a roll with their launch cadence.
3: Congratulations, SpaceX.
2: And they have another one set to go as well. The OTV-5 mission, which is sometimes dubbed the mini-shuttle, the X-37B launched by the Air Force is scheduled to launch aboard a Falcon 9 rocket on September 7th. That launch is currently scheduled to take off from Launch Complex 39A at a time to be determined, as the military likes to keep all of their launch windows and things relatively secretive. Apparently they've been having to make a whole bunch of modifications to the rocket and to everything at the pad to withstand and to prepare for such a large payload, keeping in mind It may be a mini space shuttle, but it's still pretty big looking. Other launches that occurred, this time out of Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, a Minotaur 4 successfully launched the ORS-5 spacecraft for the U.S. military into orbit very early in the morning on Saturday, August 26th. The launch was originally supposed to happen on the 25th, but due to some computer and range and rocket issues was delayed until 2.04 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday morning. This mission marked the first time that a Minotaur rocket has launched from Cape Canaveral, making it now one of very few rockets to have ever launched from every single launch site available in North America.
3: Quite a well-traveled rocket.
2: Absolutely. And not only well-traveled, but this thing travels fast. If you watch that launch, holy smokes, that is by far the fastest launch I have ever seen. And it was pointed out by many to me that, duh, that's because it's essentially a missile. It was made from modified decades-old Peacekeeper missile parts, as well as a few commercially available Orion engines. But boy, did that thing fly. (laughs) So in addition to deploying the ORS-5, it also successfully launched two CubeSats for DARPA, which is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, part of the U.S. government as well. For our next launch, we are actually going to go away from the United States and over to India. The launch was to send an Indian navigation satellite up into orbit. The launch did occur on August 31st at about 7 p.m. local time in India, which was... 9.30 a.m. Eastern Time, 13.30 GMT. This was the eighth satellite for the country's regional navigation network, and was supposed to replace a spacecraft launched four years ago which had faulty payload components. This time, it was not the payload that was faulty, it was the payload fairing aboard the rocket. According to reports, the payload fairing did not separate. As a result, it not only put the spacecraft in a much lower orbit than it was supposed to, it was stuck attached to the rocket. As of now, the payload fairing was unable to separate and still has not been able to separate, and the mission has been declared a total failure. This was their first failure of the PSLV, Polar Satellite Launch Vehicle Rocket, in its 20-year history. They had 39 total or partial successes up until now.
3: Very tough thing. Anytime you lose your payload... Definitely wish the best of luck as they investigate the causes of the payload not separating from its fairing, and hopefully we'll see a return to successful launches soon.
2: Agreed, and we'll certainly keep an eye on the investigation. That's a shame. 39 successful launches since 1993, and one failure. Alright, so we're going to move away from launches a little bit, as President Donald Trump has announced a candidate for the NASA Administrator position. Keeping in mind, this position has been empty since Charlie Bolden resigned in January, which is typical when a presidential change occurs as well as a party change who is the president. They have now officially nominated U.S. Representative Jim Bridenstine, a Republican from Oklahoma, to serve as the 13th administrator of NASA. He is a three-time representative. He has been a large player when it comes to many space-related policies. Uh, He was one of the main people behind the American Space Enterprise Act, which although did not fully get passed, many parts of it were included in other legislation. He has also been an open advocate for a human return to the moon before NASA goes on its mission to Mars in many public speeches, as well as a big blog post on his own website. He is also a big supporter of increased privatization of U.S. civil and military space activities as well. He, however, has absolutely no background when it comes to science or space other than his involvement with many of the local committees in the House of Representatives. In terms of Associate Administrator of NASA, there has been no official announcement. However, rumor has it that uh, Aerojet Rocketdyne Vice President John Shoemaker is next in line for that Deputy Administrator position, with an announcement reportedly coming soon. What do we think?
3: We have lots of thoughts. (laughs) (laughs) Although I will say, you know, it is typical for there to be vacancies that I do believe acting administrator Robert Lightfoot, who was um, involved in NASA administration under the Obama administration as well, has been in place for 227 days as of this recording, which is the longest vacancy, um... In, in the history, so the longest NASA has been without a director. I have some concerns, uh, certainly, certainly Representative Bridenstine is very passionate about space, which I think is very important, but I do have concerns about the lack of not only a science background, uh, but also a lack in, of experience in managing large organizations. Uh, taking over an organization as large as NASA is quite different than serving in the Senate. And then, again, very concerned with some of his stated positions on uh, things like climate change, which is a very large part of NASA's mission is helping Earth observations um, that monitor climate change and those same Earth observations, which, you know, can track things like hurricanes. So I, I do have some concerns with this nomination, and I am not the only one. Uh, when asked about this, the senators from Florida Uh, Democrat Bill Nelson said that, and I quote, the head of NASA ought to be a space professional, not a politician. And when asked about uh, Senator Nelson's comment, uh, Senator Marco Rubio said that he shares the same concerns Senator Nelson shared and also worried that uh, Bridenstine's political baggage would weigh him down in a GOP-led Senate. These comments were reported on uh, in Politico, uh, this past Friday, so I have concerns, and those concerns seem to be shared by other people who may have uh, quite influence in whether or not Representative Bridenstine is able to get through the nomination process, because this is a nomination which must be approved by a majority vote in the Senate.
2: Exactly. Yeah. Again, I l- I personally like his position of going to the moon first, and that seems oh, that seems to be the consensus amongst those in the Trump administration and those in Congress right now, which we've been talking about that for years. We've had people tweeting us about this. But the climate change denial is a big red flag for me as well, as Phil Plate mentioned on his blog. Again, when it comes to um lack of space background, uh some people pointed out that he was the first to be nominated who has not had a space background. That is not true. Previously, Sean O'Keefe, as well as James Webb, neither of them had science backgrounds or had been involved with spaceflight prior to that. Uh, Bridenstine, when it comes to his record, he was the former executive director of the Tulsa Air and Space Museum and Planetarium until he was elected to Congress, where he currently serves on the House Armed Services Committee and the Science, Space, and Technology Committee. So he does have some say in the political side, which I honestly think isn't necessarily a bad thing. But there's still a lot of negatives to this one. And obviously, you know, Senator Nelson and uh, some other colleagues feel the same way.
3: And I also worry that he will overly focus on privatization. And I am the first to say that I think it is absolutely fantastic that we are focused on On private space and that we have public-private partnerships. I think that they are fantastic for the administration and fantastic for NASA and great for our economy. However, I do have concerns when we put people in positions like this that perhaps would prefer to see an almost entirely privatized commercial, civil, military space even. Uh, I think that there is a very valid argument to be made that there are some space operations that are best carried out by NASA, by the government because they are uh, things that are done not only for the good of our citizens, but for the good of humanity which, you know, many may be familiar that is uh, part of NASA's ethos is that this is for all humankind and I think that there there is a very legitimate argument to be made for some operation should be reserved in this way that is carried out without concern for profit not saying that a concern for profit is a bad thing it's a great motivator um, look at the great things that spacex is doing and getting the cost of, of getting to orbit down um, that's fantastic and we should absolutely continue to pursue things that pushes the cost of flight down and that's able to get us into space uh, but i do think that we should push boundaries with an eye to safety and making the right decisions and um conversations about you know in situ resources one thing that that uh representative Bridenstine has talked about is you know the the resource of having being able to make fuel from like water and ice resources on the moon um you know but there should be a conversation about what about the moon should be protected can we even you know under treaties under the outer space treaty which We'll probably hear about a lot over the next year or so because we're coming up on sort of some big anniversaries for the Outer Space Treaty and some other UN space initiatives. Um, What are the implications for that? Like, how should resources be managed, not only on the moon, but asteroids or the Mars or things like that? And and that's certainly something where um, private enterprise is currently sort of leading those conversations. And that can be a good thing, but can also be a bad thing. Again, we want to think about... um, Those are resources, and those are resources that don't belong to anyone at this moment. And in 50 or 100 years, we want to know know, who protects those resources or who controls those. So those are some maybe not immediate concerns for this nomination, but certainly something that whoever is leading NASA next is going to be heavily involved in these conversations uh, with not only domestically, but with our international partners.
2: Exactly, and you know, that's the other thing to think about is this is going to have an impact internationally, not just at NASA. So now we move on to our big story of this episode. As we had mentioned last time, we had pre-recorded episode 909 before the Great American Solar Eclipse of 2017, although it was released after the eclipse happened. The main reason we had to pre-record it is because, Kat, you and I were in the path of totality for said eclipse. What were your thoughts on this uh, amazing eclipse that happened on Monday, August 21st, 2017?
3: As anyone who knows me knows, I love rockets. I see a rocket and my soul sings. I mean, literally, absolutely in love with rockets. I looked at my friend Mindy after totality and I said, I'd rather see a total solar eclipse than see a rocket launch. It was the most amazing thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. It was beautiful. Can I
2: say I also said the exact same thing to my friend Tizzy that I was with who I went on the road trip with. I said the exact same thing to him that this was more magnificent than a rocket launch. And I I can't believe I said that.
3: I know. You know, and I've seen an annular eclipse, So I thought I had an idea of what like this would be like. I was so wrong. I had no idea. And the pictures and the videos do not do it justice. Exactly. Like uncapturable. It's just a moment that has to be experienced and then maybe just convincing everyone that if at all possible one time in their life go see a total eclipse it is it's indescribable and I'm doing a poor job with words but it is I mean it's just it's surreal you know and and Sawyer you and I were having this conversation after after the point of totality about how it's not just like bright light like it's this blindingly beautiful ring of fire you know the sun's corona that you can see around um the the moon you know it's very looks black almost uh but it's like tinged with these beautiful like blues and purples and just i mean it takes your breath away and it's not just that the sun is eclipsed but it's the experience and everything around you that you know you could see the planets and it's a 360 degree dusk around the horizon your turn to try and describe this with words
2: yeah that's a difficult task right there (laughs) is trying to describe this but that's the thing is i will post the pictures that i took of the eclipse in the show notes but it looked nothing like that i mean i don't say nothing like that but color wise because we've all seen pictures of the eclipse where it's the dark moon with the corona or any you know solar prominences things like that and then black around it. That's what my pictures look like too, but it didn't actually look like that. It was sort of a gradient where it went from like this dark purple to a dark blue to a lighter blue, and then the most amazing thing was a 360 degree sunrise slash sunset on the horizon. That orange color that you normally see just before the sun rises or just after the sun sets, it looked like that all the way around the sky and that was fantastic. I still remember I had the solar eclipse glasses on and was looking up at the final moments before totality watching Bailey's beads disappear and I remember counting them down two beads the last bead and then in my glasses was complete and total darkness I couldn't see anything which I'm like okay I guess that means it's safe to take them off now. I took the glasses off And it took me about two seconds for it to actually register in my brain what I was seeing. I remember just taking the glasses off, just staring up, like the clock ticking, and then all of a sudden just boom, it hit you all at once of you're looking at a total eclipse. And this is better than you ever could have imagined with just the bright corona and the shimmering. Something also don't get from the pictures is the shimmering of it that is actually moving. And you can see, you know, the sun at work. And that's when I just shouted "Whoa!" at the top of my lungs, and that delay before it hit me—I I still remember that.
3: So I um, transitioned into a new job at the University of Alabama, and now I coordinate a mentoring program for graduate students. And I sent out a weekly email, and so of course my weekly email after the eclipse was all about the eclipse. And I wrote this, and I—you know—I wrote about the experience, and I said that there's this moment when you see what the the Bailey's beads, the diamond ring effect, and it looks like the sun is like. A diamond ring, and it's just like this moment before that sort of like the stone part of the diamond ring winks out and you're just staring into the blackness of an unlit moon surrounded by this brilliant fiery halo of the sun's corona, and it's blindingly white. like the light is very white. It's not yellow as we seem tend to think of like this warm yellowness of the sun. And like the temperature dropped. I think. I uh read that it was about ten degree drop uh in some places and it was notably. I got goosebumps like all over my arm, just I broke out in goosebumps. And it just was interesting but because as we were waiting for totality to happen, about maybe ten or fifteen minutes before totality, it was still bright, like sunny middle of the day, and it was a cloudless sky where I was. I was so lucky because I was about an hour east of Nashville and some people in Nashville, you know, got a cloud during totality, which I probably would have broken down and sobbed had that happened. But like Suddenly it's like, oh, it felt like a spring day, not a middle of the summer day. Like I was like, oh, I don't feel like I'm getting sunburned anymore. Like this is really, really nice. And as you get closer, you know, five, seven minutes to totality, you start to see the shadow snakes, the effect of the the moon and the sun interacting so that you sort of get um, almost double vision on, on the shadows. And then as it gets closer, you know, two to three minutes, we're all trying to take pictures to capture the light because it looks so weird. It's it's almost like you're sitting in an artificial light and it's really hard to describe and it gives a really like surreal quality to just the day. I'm like, you know, we're all like, how can we capture this? This is so weird. I
2: managed to get one photo of the discoloration and I didn't, you know, with all my photos, I tend to touch them up a little bit. This is one where I didn't touch the color on it or the brightness on it. it the way that I tried to describe it is everything just felt dull.
3: Mm, yeah.
2: Like someone had taken a contrast knob on a TV monitor or a screen and turned it down a little bit.
3: Yeah, definitely. Someone <laughs> posted one of my friends took a picture and she put it on Instagram. She goes, "There's no filter here."
2: <laughs> <laughs> it is. It creates its own filter.
3: It is. It was just. Yeah, it was. It was phenomenal. I mean, that was, just
2: that was so cool. And again, like you were talking about the shadows beforehand, and uh, in regards to the temperature, I actually didn't experiment with that. Uh, I. Went into my car about 15 minutes before the eclipse started. My car thermometer read 100 degrees. Uh, I then checked just before totality, and it read 89. Wow. So an 11 degree Fahrenheit temperature difference uh, from before to just after totality
3: minty look at me. she goes can we become those people who chase eclipses around the world and i was like yes 100 percent." i've already looked at trips to 2019 <laughs> to chile or argentina
2: i think we are all now umbraphiles, as it's called
3: yes <laughs> very much so
2: now uh i do want to play you and i both have audio of totality but um Before we go to that part, I want to talk about the fact that there were plenty of people that chased this eclipse and they came from all over the place. Uh, My friend and I, who took the road trip, which I have to give Tizzy a big shout out, uh, without him, uh, I would not have gone on this trip. He learned about it late and said, Who wants to do a road trip amongst my friend group? I said, Of course, I'd love to. And uh, I'm glad we did. And we lucked out in that we had a ring of clouds surrounding the entire sky except for where we were there was a giant giant opening directly over the park we were at in Sumter South Carolina whereas it was cloudy the rest of the way around it and it clouded up before you know the eclipse completely ended so we got the perfect timing on it but uh, while we were doing that we took a note of all the different places that we either spoke to people and told us where they were from or of license plates that we saw Uh, that were going to the eclipse and where they were from. And we had, keep in mind, we were in South Carolina. Uh, We indeed had South Carolina, North Carolina. We also had Connecticut, Massachusetts, New York, New Jersey, Pennsylvania, Florida, Georgia, Virginia, Maryland, Arkansas, Louisiana, and British Columbia, Canada.
3: Quite a, I mean, people traveled from all over. I was very distracted by the entire Eclipse experience. Also, I might have watched the Eclipse from a winery. <laughs> Although I will say I have these really cool, like, bendy glasses they gave us. But all the wine at the winery was sweet. So I had, like, a tasting and that was it. And also, I really wanted to be sober for the experience. Um, but so people were really having fun because we were at a winery. There was some live music. We had an astronomer there who was also talking about the event. Uh, but I was able to talk to a few people One, I was wearing my uh, I went to undergrad at the University of Arizona. Bear down. Um, so I was wearing a an Arizona hat and the guy next to me starts talking to me because he's like, oh, did you go to Arizona? I was like, yeah, I did my undergrad there. And he's like, oh, I did my Ph.D. And I was like, asked in what? And he said anthropology. I was like, oh, I did my undergrad in anthropology. Uh, so I was able to talk to him. So I have a sound clip. He actually is a futurist now. Um, and so he spends his time thinking about what's going on in the future and sort of scheming out these things as a futurist. And so he had some really interesting comments. All right, will you say your name and where you're from?
4: I'm John Mahaffey from Washington, D.C.
3: And John, tell me what brings you to Delmonico Winery in Baxter, Tennessee?
4: Well I uh, realized we were having an eclipse across the United States and I realized that I, where I live would be 80% uh, and not 100% totality. Right? And I thought, why not go where, you know, have the full experience. And and that's the kind of experience that's kind of rare. I'm 57, right? So how many more chances do I get unless I go to other parts of the world? So I didn't want to miss it. So, you know, the experience is, is absolutely worth it. And seeing it online or on TV or partial, not good
3: enough. And we were talking a little bit about earlier that you're a futurist, so tell me why do you think this eclipse is important for just our nation?
4: Well, you know, it's interesting. I think it's important anyway, but as a futurist, I see, I look for chances for Americans and anybody to learn something. And, and when they learn something collectively, that's about as powerful as it gets. So a few people who are aware of something learning it, that isn't very, very powerful. But, but when society, you could say kind of in the aggregate, has an, a shared experience, and it's a positive experience, uh, or even a negative experience can be a learning moment like Katrina. But a positive experience, with some si- in this case, with some science blended into it, I think we're waking people up to the power of science, the value of science, why it's interesting, why it's fun. And I, I was saying earlier, there's a, another gentleman here who's a grad student in astrophysics. He's over there with a the telescope. <laughs> and I said, I think you're going to see a little uptick in students coming along and saying, I, you know, I saw the 2017 eclipse, and I realized then I wanted to study the sky. And I think that's a great, that's a win. It's a win for the whole society.
3: And speaking of that grad student that he mentioned, I also got to go and talk to him. And funnily enough, um, so John went to, got his PhD where I got my undergrad. Well, where Nathan, who we're going to hear from next, got, is getting his PhD at Penn State. John got his undergrad from Penn State. So it really felt like a small, small world. And which is interesting because watching something like an Eclipse, you really feel, and I don't know if Sawyer, if you felt this way as well, but you really feel connected to the rest of humanity in a moment like that. And uh, I was very connected in a very interesting way through through John, who we just heard from, uh, to... This other person, who we're about to hear from Nathan, so I will go ahead and play his short interview.
0: Uh, I'm Nathan Laurie, and I'm from uh, Philadelphia, PA.
3: Great, Nathan, thanks for talking to me. So, tell me a little bit about why you're here.
0: So, I'm here uh, just to see just to see a super cool thing in a really cool place. Um, it's, not, it's a funny thing because it's not studying astrophysics. You're always looking for, like, really extraordinary events or anything like that. And it's not particularly extraordinary, but it's pretty extraordinary That's a place I can drive
4: to in a couple hours.
3: That's <laughs> Great. And then you yourself are a graduate student in astrophysics. What do you study?
5: Um, so I study how stars form. Oh, great. Um, so how how you get from big clouds of gas into things that are
0: igniting fusion and are are real self-sustaining things. Great. Well, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate
3: it. Thanks. And uh, the great thing about Nathan is he also has a telescope that's bound for the stratosphere over Antarctica, looking for the origins of stars. So you can uh, check out his telescope on Twitter. It's at blast, B-L-A-S-T underscore T-N-G. Like the next generation. I'm pretty sure that's not what it stands for, but I like that it's TNG.
2: (laughs) I still love it. And uh, I don't know if I felt connected to humanity. I think I felt more connected to the universe, if that makes any sense. Just the way that I thought about it was the fact that the moon had to be the exact size and the exact distance from the earth that it was. The sun had to be the exact size and the exact distance from the earth that it was. They both had to be in the exact correct place at the exact right time, and then we had to be in the exact correct place at the exact right time to see totality. Just the amount that goes into making this happen and celestial terms is fantastic, and I think it really emphasizes how small we are in our place in the universe, and how you know, everything just had to work out just right, not only for life to survive on this planet, but to be able to see a phenomenon like this. And that was how I felt about it. And I guess, you know, being with all these people from around the country and around the world who came just to see this, you know, I I guess that does make you feel connected to humanity as well. And I guess it's stronger, you know, that we all came to see our place in space.
3: Yeah, you really do. It's sort of phenomenal. <laughs> I said that word a lot, but it's it's the most appropriate uh, for something that it's hard to describe unless you've seen it. And I think, you know, and you and I talked about this earlier as well, that the reason that we both said that this is something that we love rockets, and I love a rocket launch, and I never thought that I would be like, oh, there's something I'd rather see that's, you know, <laughs> rather than a rocket launch. But it's, you know, rockets are about, the incredible things that humans can do and send and explore. But the eclipse was about the incredible things that the universe does without any of our intervention, that there are these beautiful things that are um, supernatural, not in a, in a, you know, kooky, like, ooh, way, but <laughs> supernatural in this way that that they're outside of our normal experience. And so they're extraordinary. And it's something that doesn't require anything special to see. And you know, and they happen a lot. I mean, you know, you get a total solar eclipse um, about every 18 months, but, you know, they're not accessible to everyone all the time. And and certainly not even, you know, accessible more than once or twice in a life for any one person, unless you're privileged enough to have the means and ability to travel. Uh, but it is something that is just amazing. And you're right, it's sort of like a big bang moment in a very small way that everything has to be perfectly right to experience this. And then not only the perfect rightness, but as you were talking about before, Sawyer, that you see the sun as something active. You know, it's not just a bright point in the sky that you better not look at directly or you'll burn your retinas, but it's something that has active processes going on, and, and we get a glimpse into that during a total solar eclipse.
2: Exactly. Now, the people I spoke to had come from Louisiana. They weren't there initially for the eclipse, but uh, decided to change their mind knowing what a rare opportunity this was in uh we Get to hear a little bit about their decision process, and keep in mind this was also recorded before totality. Can I start
0: with your, uh, yeah, Roy and Stacy Duplanchet from New Orleans, Louisiana.
1: What brought you guys over
0: here? Well, we were actually coming over to South Carolina uh, from Myrtle Beach just to spend a few days on the beach and head over to Charlotte for a few days after this. And we figured, hey, if we're in the area, you know, we might as well find 100% uh, total eclipse coverage and and head over that way. Just take a little side trip. What were your
1: thoughts? On I'm actually more excited than he is. It was totally worth it to me. I'm very much looking forward to seeing it. So,
5: how
1: far is this travel for
5: you? Well, we flew into Charlotte, drove over to
0: Charleston, and then drove to Myrtle Beach and then over here. So, it's probably only about an hour out of the way.
2: But still coming all the way from
0: New Orleans. uh, Still coming all the way from New
2: Orleans, yeah. How much are you guys
0: into space kind of things?
1: Not that much, really. This is just such an anomaly that we'll might as well be enthusiastic about this.
0: Well, and she's a teacher, so, you know, anything like this that's somewhat educational as well is is always, you know, interesting for her.
2: Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to that fellow educator here. Uh, Seeing the partial eclipse
1: It's much more gradual than I'd expected it to be. Of course, my expectations were based on nothing. So, but um, it's getting exciting. The closer and closer we're getting, it's getting more and more exciting.
2: They were keeping track of the progress of the eclipse since they couldn't really get pictures of it that well and sending it to their daughter, who was also a teacher, um, by taking bites out of a moon pie to kind of show what the sun looked like. Uh, Mark, you didn't get full totality. Did you get to see any of it while you were uh, out there in uh, central Florida?
0: I was working, so no, nah, it was just uh, a little bit less sunshine.
2: So as the sun started to fade away, we had the color change, which you mentioned, Kat, as well, which was fascinating. And it, just how dull everything looked, and that's indescribable, and I hope that the picture that we'll post in the show notes does it justice. But then came totality, which I don't know about you, but I was expecting the darkness to be a lot more gradual than it was, as opposed to you know the last five minutes just all of a sudden it got dark quick so then comes the darkness increasing and then finally totality Uh, now you and I both have recordings from totality they're both slightly different yours is of your reaction mine is of the crowd reaction I want to hear yours first I want to hear your uh, (laughs) your reactions (laughs) to seeing totality as it happened
3: (laughs) yes I will let's listen to cat amazing
1: thing
4: i've
3: ever seen in my life as you can hear this is the most amazing thing i have ever seen in my entire life and it it is it still is nothing that cool has happened the two weeks since then
2: and your friend summarized it very well it's freaking amazing
3: yeah yeah, it was freaking amazing.
2: That That's so great to hear your personal reaction to it, because mine was more of a <laughs> generic crowd reaction. So I wanted to hear yours, because if it was mine, it would have blown out the microphone of, whoa, but uh, this is a little bit before totality. And then I think you'll be able to tell the exact moment when totality hits.
1: It's okay, it's okay. promise. <laughs> it's okay.
3: Oh, it's <laughs>
2: I just love their reactions of when it first happened and then That it's coming back.
3: I just love, I don't know, someone must have been talking to a child. You yeah, the sun's going bye-bye. <laughs>
1: <laughs>
2: I love I that love too. That. Yeah, there was a younger child there. It was a, the age group was amazing. Just the mix of young and old and there were toddlers and infants and teenagers and, you know, us and, you know, their early to mid-twenties and older people and then the elderly and the a number of people there was and the age range was fantastic and again just that reaction to it you could hear everyone's cheering and screaming and you can notice you can hear us pointing out different things my friend Tizzy and I are quite noticeable in there uh, talking about the sunset all around and the other thing he pointed out uh, that we didn't discuss even was the stars and planets that were out you could see Regulus a really bright star you could see I think we were able to see Venus or Mercury and Jupiter was there. and Mars was visible behind. It was fantastic. I think we've used that. Someone needs to do a word (laughs) counter and email us how many times we said fantastic this episode in just the eclipse segment.
3: (laughs) It was amazing. It was the most amazing experience of my life. It was better than getting accepted into PhD programs
2: better than a lot of things uh and again i have to give a huge shout out to the people in sumter south carolina besides their hospitality and kindness and everything they put on one heck of a show they had uh an entire park dedicated just for the eclipse where they had food drinks face painting and games for the kids they had drone racing which was really cool um in addition to music and they gave out free pairs of solar eclipse glasses to everyone in attendance And they actually prepared enough so that there was no shortage. They had extra glasses. They gave them out to anybody and everybody who wanted one there. And then they were giving them out to all the first responders and police officers and everyone that were there too so they can enjoy it as well. But I got to talk with uh, one of the people who was in charge of the party in uh, Sumter, South Carolina uh, after totality right afterwards to get her reaction and then learn about what it
5: takes to put together a solar eclipse viewing, which about how it
2: happened in South Carolina and what goes into planning an eclipse party and also another reaction to totality.
1: All right, if I can start with your name and title, please. My name is Shelley Kyle, and I am the Communications and Tourism Director for Sumter. So, what preparations went into getting to the cliff party? <laughs> oh my goodness! Well, we've started many months ago. Um, of course, we've known about this for well thousands of years, but um, it came up on our radar probably about last year. Really, that hey, we gotta had to start something. We got a committee together early part of the the calendar year this year, made up of county employees city employees we actually had an astrophysicist photographer uh, that works with NASA he work he lives in the community so I knew who he was being a, uh, an amateur photographer myself so I just said oh I got a call hat let's and I said what are you doing on August 21st and he said oh I'm gonna be in Wyoming phot- or photographing the eclipse and I said, "Well, we're putting a committee together. Will you help us out?" He said, "Absolutely, I'd love to do." So yeah, we pulled everybody. We had a there's a lot of team members that went into this, but um, you know, we just started meeting and talking about what we wanted to do. And, and this being Dillon Park, one of our largest parks in Sumter County, it was a kind of a no brainer that we just needed to have it here because we knew there was going to be ample parking and then also ample space for people as well as activities. What does this do for a community
2: that's normally rather small, right? It gets a lot of people coming
1: in. Well, the city itself has about 40 to 42,000. We fluctuate having a a military base here on site. Uh, County has a total population of 108,000. So when you add anywhere from... Maybe five thousand to a hundred thousand people to a community, then you're, yeah, you're talking about very significant. We've had hotels been sold out since May. Um, we, we've had a few hotel rooms available in the past couple of nights. You know, some block rooms have come up and, and available, but you know, yeah, we've been sold out for months. Uh, you know, hotel rooms, of course, have been hard to come by and been expensive, and we've had some of the Airbnb's reporting some of their best numbers for South Carolina total. Uh, for this event, so yeah, we were really really happy to be part of it and just I can't I'm awestruck yeah after just watching that uh,
2: <laughs>
1: You know for a communications person it's hard to describe it's hard to put it in words um, uh, You know we were talking about earlier is it's hard you see it on TV you see renditions of it and, and, and people's interpretations of it of what's going to happen and how it's going to happen but when you're standing there in that moment and literally when you see those Bailey's beads on the edge and you know you're going to about to see it from the naked eye with your naked eye and look up there and you see that ring look chills I literally as I'm talking I have chills coming over my, my back of my neck and up my head <laughs> so it is it's just hard to explain that such a phenomenon that you know whether you believe in God, Mother Nature, or whoever you believe put us on this earth, to be able to show us something like that, and it's once in a lifetime for most people, is amazing. Absolutely amazing. Yeah, what
2: about for all the younger people that are here and things like that, them getting to see it? For
1: them? You know, I can't be happier to see how many kids we have here and full families. Families coming in as far as, I've talked to people from Houston, I've talked to people from Vancouver, B.C., I've talked to Massachusetts and New Jersey and Rhode Island and New York, Maryland, you know, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, even Florida. We've had them from all across the eastern shoreboard, uh, you know, coming to Sumter. And yeah, coming to our little town and they're coming up and saying, hey, we, you know, this wonderful southern hospitality, we've been here for a day or two or we're staying a couple of days and, and we, the people couldn't be more nice. We've never met nicer people than we have here in Sumter, South Carolina, but of course, that's a Southern charm thing, you know, but, but we love it. We absolutely love it. And again, love seeing the full families coming in, uh, you know, kids, we've had buses of kids come in from, from schools that are out of state. So yeah, it's phenomenal and welcome to everybody. I'm glad we, could, I'm glad everybody could get here to see it too. Do you know about how many people were here for this or how many were expecting? We uh, we had no idea what to expect, really. You know, we have a Facebook event page out, and we, we try to use that to garner how many people. But really, you had like 600 people that said, yeah, we're absolutely going. We had almost 3,000 people say they're interested. But you never know if you're capturing all the audience. Um, we had over 3,500 cars that we parked today here at Dillon Park. Now, we have five other parks that I've already had reports on in Sumter that are completely full as well. None of, none of them as big as Dillon Park but they're awful as well. So 3,500 cars, and if you times that what they call like a tourism standard, which is 3.5, <laughs> yeah, you're, you're talking about major, major, major people. We're talking probably 10,000 at least here at Dillon Park. Yeah, it seems like everyone's well-equipped. You you know, the here Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, they're used to holding large events here. We have uh, World Series baseball games here for the youth. We have all kinds of things, football games, soccer games that are held here every year, all the time. So they're used to the traffic patterns. They're used to setting things up. And that was one of, of course, that was part of the team immediately. We contacted the sheriff's office, Sumter PD, and said, you guys have handled this on many other occasions. Why don't you come in and you tell us what we need to do. So, Anything else you want to add? Um, thank you for coming in. We hope you, everybody, enjoyed Sumter, South Carolina, and we invite you back again. It's
2: amazing how much goes into that and the planning. And again, you know, in that park, about ten thousand people alone, and it doesn't include the five other parks. So you're talking maybe forty, fifty thousand people in a county that normally only has a hundred thousand. Yet another communications person who is left speechless by this and. It's taken me the two weeks since the eclipse to try and compose myself and figure out how I would actually describe this on the podcast of how do we convey to people what we saw that is something that's typically indescribable, and especially on an audio show where we can't show any video with it. (laughs) I hope to the listeners that we did our job and that we were able to convey it as best as we could and that you kind of got a sense of it, but the only way to really understand everything that we were saying is to see it for yourself. And if you have seen an eclipse yourself, how would you describe it to people? That's what I want to hear from you guys, of how would you describe a solar eclipse? Did we do a good job? Do you think we could have done it better? Mailbag at TalkingSpaceOnline.com is our email. Facebook page is Talking Space. We are at Talking Space on Twitter. We also have our Google Plus page. And we have the Contact Us page as well on our website, TalkingSpaceOnline.com. I want to hear from some other people that aren't necessarily science communicators of how you communicate what an eclipse is like to someone who's never seen it and to try and describe what we saw.
3: Yes, please. <laughs> Can you do a better job?
2: If <laughs> so, Donkey Space is hiring. We pay zero dollars and zero cents an hour.
3: <laughs> but the team's great. <laughs> and work from home.
2: Exactly. <laughs> And you get to go and cover amazing events and talk to some great people at things like rocket launches and solar eclipses. And in the case of Gene McCulka, the Podcast Movement 2017, which just recently concluded on the week of the eclipse as well. So unfortunately, Gene missed out on the eclipse while he was in the air. But instead, we did get a fantastic collaboration. Since we were pretty much the only really space podcast that was represented at Podcast Movement, we figured... Let's see what else we can do. And Gene got a fantastic collaborative event uh, to talk about science and STEM. And, uh, well, Gene, I'll let you take it from here.
0: Good day. This is uh, Gene McCulka from the Talking Space podcast, and we're here live from uh, Podcast Movement. Uh, I want to go ahead and first off, before we even start, uh, to thank uh, TalkShoe for uh, sponsoring this live recording of uh, well, there's a little bit of a joint recording here uh, for Talking Space. It's the first time we're, we're doing this, and I am here with...
5: Yeah, this is uh, Daniel Drahura from uh, University of Southern California. We're with Escape Velocity. Yeah,
0: and we're here to go ahead and, and talk a little bit about uh, how podcasting can help the, uh, the challenge, if you will, of, uh, of STEM and, and, and STEM outreach, and not just for, uh, for students and universities but also for the general public and how podcasting can go ahead and and popularize science and popularize really, really the findings for the general public. Uh, and before we came on uh, in our, our pre-show conversation here, uh, we had some very interesting ways of looking at it. So why don't you go ahead and kind of, Daniel, and, uh, and kick us off a little bit. And because and your, your show is really, really interesting. It is really hardcore science, no?
5: Right, well, um, we are unique in the sense that we actually uh, are embedded in a university. And we, we podcast from USC, which is where science happens. So we, we are within arm's length of uh, scientists and engineers and technology, new technology being developed, uh, Silicon Beach, uh, new companies being started, and uh, STEM at the forefront of outreach to get more kids involved in STEM, excited about STEM, and finding ways. We're also in the entertainment capital of the world. Yes. So uh, it's, it's an interesting convergence. It's an interesting place to be in. Um, everyone is vying for attention. Everyone wants a share of uh, a share of ear, and uh, science is an interesting player in that. And uh, I, I think science, engineering, uh, and technology can really find its footing in in this world where everyone is looking for great stories. And I think great content and great stories are what people are interested in in your eyes what do you think
0: what do you think the challenges are and how do you think podcasting can go ahead and and help popularize science in general and not again not just for universities but for anybody who really wants to listen
5: i think podcasting as a growing medium has a a tremendous opportunity to uh, be a vehicle for science communication and not just for um people that are in, you know, the radio world. I think, I think we need to hear from scientists. We need to hear their voices, their stories. Um, we talked about, you know, how science can also be entertaining. Yes. Uh, you know, we, science has its own uh, protagonist, its own antagonists, high stakes. Um, I mean, think about it. We, uh, we have so many challenges these days that where science can be an answer. Uh, everything from diplomacy, to the environment, the economy. Is, uh, science is so relevant. And I think people are missing out on that. They, they don't understand how science is relevant. They think, you know, this is something that happens in a lab or uh, at NASA, you know, uh, International Space Station. They don't realize that science is among us. And uh, scientists are, are here and they're not locked in a lab. They, uh, the way science is done has also changed over the years. So. Um, We, if science is the way science is done, is changing. I think the science, the way science is communicated, is also changing.
0: Yeah, we we uh, in in the pre-show here a little bit. We we talked a little bit about um, well, one of the things I mentioned was uh, back in 1995, uh, the late great Carl Sagan gave a discussion at the Liberty Science Center. Yeah, and one of the things that he pointed out was, at least back then science wasn't really being popularized enough uh and he he gave the example of i think he believed i believe he he pointed this out in the uh in his series cosmos that there wasn't at that time even a, a weekly column on astronomy but gosh darn it you could find a daily column on astrology and a lot of the pseudosciences over there and and we seem to be kind of I don't know falling back into that, and you know you've got the the Bigfoot searches and stuff like that. And you know, how do you how do you basically combat that kind of thing? And how could podcasting kind of take you know shine light into the darkness, if you will, uh, in your estimation?
5: Yeah, you're, talk, you're talking about you know we're the phenomenon of fake news, and we're yes. the phenomenon of fake science yes. is <laughs> just as um, rampant and you're right uh, we have to make science relevant and I think the reason people look at things like astrology is because they are they want to see how their lives are going to be affected it's generally uh, people want to connect to something that is bigger than themselves and I think science fits wonderfully in that because science is something that's bigger than us and and it's not about being self-centered and it's not about all you it's not all about you it's about the world you live in and learning how to uh... live in that world how a uh... how that world is changing um, and that's what i think people want to connect to and science is a wonderful vehicle for that to get people to connect to something bigger
0: yeah I, I think i think uh... yesterday we got a good look at that uh... yesterday of course being the uh... the total solar eclipse and it was sort of a an entire nation binding event where because it went from coast to coast and you had people taking a pause you know, in, in their daily lives and uh, taking you know special glasses and looking up, or you know building little eclipse uh, viewers and and trying to see this thing. And uh,
5: yeah, what an amazing way of science bringing America together.
0: Yeah, for one moment, one shiny moment. Yeah, on Monday we kind of forgot about everything and yeah, and put on said our
5: solar glasses and. We looked at the, uh, the eclipse. Yeah,
0: and, when, and just, just look back and wonder at, uh, at, at the natural world and, and the celestial mechanics around it. Uh, so, you know, I, I, again, where now, now your show is, is kind of interesting. You guys featured science. How do you go ahead and, and, and what would your recommendations be to popularize kind of STEM and, and, and to really, really kind of make sure that the word the gets out there?
5: Yeah, so our you know our show has been in existence for uh, two years now, and it's the first engineering podcast at the University of Southern California. We found that uh, there weren't that many engineering podcasts out there. Science, engineering, and you know, uh, engineering obviously has as an umbrella has many many disciplines. So we uh, we found that we're living in we're living in a in a world where there are so many uh, different subheads under that umbrella. Uh, where you know we can talk about bioscience, we can talk about aerospace, we can talk about electrical engineering, computer science, and how these affect our lives. So the way we we approach a show and, and, a, and a subject is first of all, is this something that needs to be talked about now, and why are we talking about it now? So uh, uh, science has this uh, uh, amazing uh, uh, quality about it that it's that it's timely, it's it's pertinent to our time. So. We, we, we look at, like, what are, who are the people at the forefront of science? Uh, what are they doing? How are they affecting our lives? Why are we talking about this now? Why is it important? Um, that's one of the criteria that we use. The other one is we, we need to be able to communicate to people of how this affects their lives and how this impacts them. Um, we, we also look at the people behind uh, the science, the, the human story. So the human story, I think, is really important, and we need to bring that out because it's a lot of times the human story is lost when we communicate science. Uh, We we lose, when we talk about, for instance, a medical discovery, we sometimes forget the patients whose lives are affected. We did a recent podcast uh, on a woman from Caltech uh, who uh, was using big data to treat her own cancer and uh, found... Uh, basically, her own treatment using big data, and that's that's kind of the stuff we're looking for, like the humans and the wonderful discoveries, and how that changes the world.
0: We we have a similar philosophy on talking space. We try to go ahead and look at look at the human side of of, of spaceflight and and try to feature those stories too. We had a just last episode. We had two very interesting features in that area. But one of the things we did talk about was the very first scout troop that had a, uh, an experiment fly on, on the International Space Station. I just remember, too, the scoutmaster just beaming. Uh, I mean, you can hear it in the man's voice. He was just absolutely ecstatic about these kids having the, these opportunities. And the the opportunities for kids also, uh, thanks to uh, outfits like CASIS and so on, have kind of paved the road, if you will, for Uh, schools and for universities and so on that want to fly science on the on the ISS or even develop CubeSats or things like that to go ahead and fly Uh, I mean the opportunities are endless gosh darn it I wish I had had these opportunities when I was little because uh, I mean it's really really blown the 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 doors wide open for uh, for 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 kids and and science who want to go ahead and and try to try to, you know, flex their muscles. And, and, I mean, how many kids can say that they flew an experiment in space? I mean, think about that. that, that that's just too cool. Yeah,
5: it's uh, well, it's an interesting thing you bring up because we are living in a time of tremendous opportunity. There has never been a time in history where we have so many different channels of communication, so many platforms uh, available to us. Uh, I mean, re- really with uh, even video and uh, podcasting, obviously, you can just basically um start your own podcast you know um, it's we we also want to sort of you know give a model to scientists hopefully we we want them to get excited about podcasting and and if you're a scientist out there and and, and you have a story to tell about the work you're doing and uh you want to get the word out about the important work it, really it's simple uh it, you know there's you can get a recorder a microphone you know and you can do it from your room honestly Th- that's the other thing, too.
0: Would, would, I mean, I, I don't know about you, but we didn't have any, like, quote, media training, close quote, when we first started out back in, in 2009. How do you go about in, in trying to go ahead and get a scientist comfortable with with talking behind a mic? and, and I mean, for you and I, it's all hat, but for somebody that's not used to it, even though they are, you know, brilliant very they good may, question you know they may not they may be a little bit microphone shot. not you everyone is bill that? nye the science guy yeah exactly yeah. so so uh, you know that 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 to me may be a problem going going forward and and, and that that might be an issue that you might want to go that we might want to go ahead and say hey we really do want you here uh we want to tell your story we want to make sure that your discoveries your information your data gets popularized in the correct manner and give you an opportunity to tell your story and and try to go ahead and make it Make this this beautiful you know music sound yeah. less complex, and that that's our and, job.
5: And I think. that's that's a very good point, Gene. I think historically scientists have been wary of media because uh, sometimes uh, you know they get misquoted or their research gets misrepresented in some way, or some you know a reporter may not fully understand what they're working on and the ramifications of their work. So. Um, and a lot of scientists uh, shy away from media actually we we have a lot of scientists who say you know if you're a serious scientist you wouldn't be talking to media you'd be in the lab doing experiments but we we uh, we think that that mentality can change and um, that's the beauty of podcasting actually because it gives you the freedom it gives you the medium is in your power now so uh, you 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 can control it you can control the message you can uh, um, you can talk about your work accurately, and this is that's why it's a wonderful thing to to be able to do that to not to be uh, distilled or edited down or, or dumbed down as, yes. as some scientists uh, are afraid.
0: Yeah, and, and the other thing too, I think it's our job in a way to make sure that when we report a finding or that a we get we get the individual that actually was doing the work on. But also, we we try to not to be objective. We don't go ahead and try to slant the story and try to put a a spin on it. We let the scientist go ahead and tell his or her own story and allow them to go ahead and say, you know, unfiltered, this is what we found. This is what's going on. So I I think from a podcasting standpoint, we we can really, really... I don't think we, we think we can make a difference in in um, in getting getting the word out about you know certain scientific discoveries. Um, we've got about a few few seconds left here. Um, is there anything else you want to go ahead and wrap this conversation up?
5: What what I want to say is that at the, at the end of the day, it's about telling stories, and and uh, if you have a story to tell, if you're out there and you are wondering, you know, how can I tell my story? What is the uh, best format for that? Just know that podcasting is available and that you can do that, the, that it's uh, an amazing new tool in the hand of scientists and engineers and people in uh, technology and, and it's available to you and you can do it and don't give up. If you're out there in a, in a room a recording, don't give up. Keep doing it. You know, we, we, we've been doing it for two years. Uh, Gene, you've been doing it for uh, eight, eight years, years now. Uh, we oftentimes wonder why we're still doing it. Yes. <laughs> But we believe in what we're doing and that it's important to get the word out about amazing science that's happening. And science is a character also in its own story. And to give it that, um, to give it that spotlight, I think, is amazing. We, you know, we recently uh, got partial funding from the United Engineering Foundation, which we're th- very thankful for. That's wonderful. And so there are, uh, there are organizations out there that will, will help you, will support you. This is a big deal,
0: and I think too. This community, you know, the podcasting community is there for you too. And and there will, from what I've been gathering the past few days here at Podcast Movement uh, 2017 here in Anaheim, the entire community wants to help you. And and because in uh, telling your story is your own superpower, as one speaker yesterday told, uh, sort of imparted. The, the other thing, too, is that, again, I'm glad you, you said this, because I told uh, an audience of newbies yesterday, don't give up. You, everybody here has got their own story to tell. Everybody here has got their own, uh, their own, uh, their own niche, and, and they're willing to go ahead and, and talk. So, um, Daniel, where, the, where can folks find you if they want to go ahead and download you?
5: Yeah, it's, uh, we are actually on uh, iTunes under uh, USC Escape Velocity. If you search us uh, on iTunes, you can find us there, uh, as well as SoundCloud.
0: And if uh, folks want to go ahead and reach out and talk to uh, your podcasting team, are you on Twitter or Facebook? Yes,
5: we are definitely on. You can reach us at uh, the USC Viterbi Twitter page and our USC Viterbi School of Engineering uh, Facebook page.
0: Sounds grand. Uh, And, of course, if folks want to go ahead and reach out to Talking Space, uh, you can find us on Twitter at Talking Space or to myself at GeneJM29. Um, or reach out to any of the team members Um, also we are on uh, Facebook talking space and uh, again thank uh, Daniel again Um, appreciate your time here today and I also want to thank the folks over at uh, Shure for providing the the microphone equipment and I want to go ahead and thank uh, the folks over at uh, TalkShoe for going ahead and setting this whole thing up and allowing us to go ahead and have this conversation so again Daniel Thank you so much for your time thank today. Thank you, Gene. It was And a uh, again, folks, please download Escape Velocity. It's a great show.
2: It is absolutely fantastic. I wish Gene could have been here so we could discuss it more. But uh, thank you so much, Gene McCulka, and uh, for getting your guest on to talk with us. Uh, and, I mean, really awesome. And uh, thank you as well for going out there to Podcast Movement. And uh, to anyone who's listening for the first time since hearing about us at Podcast Movement, thank you for giving us a try. And with that, I think that brings this packed episode to its conclusion. I do want to point out that this episode is being released on the week of our eight-year anniversary of Talking Space. The first episode of Talking Space was released September 9th, 2009. Oh, nine, oh, nine, oh, nine. We are now eight years into this amazing show. I want to thank everyone who's been a part of it, and you, the listeners in particular, for continuing to listen to us, whether you've been there for all eight years, or this is your first episode, or anywhere in between. A big thank you. We will have a full celebration next episode. As next episode not only marks eight years of Talking space. But next episode will be our 250th episode of Talking Space. As hard as that is to believe, we have put out now 249 episodes of this show. And I can't thank you enough for listening to any and all of them. But we have an extremely, extremely special guest coming on. And I don't want to spoil it, but I will give you a hint. They have flown in space. So uh, I'll leave it at that. It is a fantastic astronaut coming on. Um, But in the meantime, I'd like to thank everyone who joined us here tonight. Thank you for joining us, Kat Robinson.
3: Always a pleasure. And although I will also be on our 250th episode, uh, this is our last regular episode that we're recording before I head to the International Astronautical Congress, uh, 68th annual one in Adelaide, Australia which I am very excited to say that the entire trip is being sponsored by NASA as I'm attending as one of their International Space Education Board-sponsored students. And with that means I will also be able to go to Canberra. I'm going to be touring the Deep Space Network, as well as taking part in the Space Generation Congress as a delegate. Um, So... I'm very excited to share that entire experience with all of you on the podcast, and a very huge, huge thank you to the NASA Education and Research Office uh, for making this a very uh, once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for me to not only visit Australia for the first time, uh, but get to see some of the coolest space things in Australia. So, um, like I said, I'll be on our 250th episode as well, but since that's a special episode, just wanted to mention... Uh look forward to be able to share with you everything that happened at IAC uh and some of my own research in our episodes in October.
2: Well, we're looking forward to hearing uh what happens over at IAC and hopefully you'll come back and report to us uh what you saw and what you heard. And thank you as well for joining us. One of the original dynamic trio, Mark Raderman.
0: Good to be here. Thanks everybody and Kat. Just remember look right, then left when you cross the road.
3: (laughs) Thanks for the advice.
2: (laughs) and thank you of course for joining us we hope you'll join us for episode number 250 and our eight-year celebration all packed into one with a very very special astronaut guest and the whole gang will be there as well and we hope you will join us for that episode too until then as always have a great day night evening or whatever it may be where you are